action always starts with dialogue. HFMA President and CEO Joe Pfeiffer interviews Dr. Zev Newworth today on the Voices in Healthcare Finance podcast. Hello and welcome to the podcast. I'm Erica Grotto, and I'm very excited to introduce someone who really needs no introduction. Joe Pfeiffer, welcome. Well, thanks for having me, Erica. I'm so excited to have you back on the podcast. Really excited to share today's interview with our listeners. But first, let's talk about what's going on with you and HFMA. Well, if you think about what we were all thinking about a year ago, there was so much mystery involved and it was frenetic. It was frenetic in the healthcare industry. So many of our members were scrambling. They were worried about their balance sheets. Of course, they were freaking out about their revenue and there were mandates to shut down much of acute care to open up space for COVID patients. And that was a frenetic time in our industry while we're still dealing with the pandemic. In fact, if you look at the actual numbers, I think they're still higher now than they were back say in March or April. You know, we've learned as an industry how to cope with all of that environment much more effectively. HFMA is really no different. What we were thinking about a year ago, we were looking at, gosh, can we even have our annual conference? Of course, you might remember, we thought this was going to be such short term, right? We were thinking, gosh, can we, can we have our annual conference or not? I remember last March having that thought process and thinking, well, I don't know yet. I didn't want to cancel. I didn't want to reschedule oh my gosh, were we wrong about how long this was going to last? But the magnitude of all the changes for HFMA, you know, quite frankly, were at least as great as they were for health systems. And so it caused us to do all kinds of, we retooled everything that we did. Of course, you know, we took last year's annual conference, we made it virtual, we've made so much of our, the rest of our content easily accessible and virtual. We've just implemented a brand new learning management system or LMS to make access to our content and certifications and everything else much more user-friendly. We did a restructuring within HFMA, which is painful, as everybody knows, but it was necessary. And, oh my gosh, I, I don't know that, that there's ever been a year with more change in my whole career as in this last year. And I can say that with a tone in my voice of not just that it's in the history, but we went through a lot and and a lot of that was a financial challenge for us as an association. And I'm glad to tell you that we've stabilized ourselves and, and now our run rate on our finances look good. We're right now looking at doing budgets for next year. Of course, we're calling it a financial blueprint and not a fixed budget, uh, which I think some of our listeners can resonate with. And that looks good as well. And so, yeah, it was a traumatic year with lots of changes, but we're feeling pretty good about things going forward. Yeah. And uh, I'm not going to give any spoilers, but I know there's an awful lot of exciting stuff coming up for HFMA. So uh, we'll talk about a little bit of that at the end of the episode. As I said before, I'm really excited to share today's interview with our listeners. Uh, Joe, you spoke recently with Dr. Zev Newworth, who is the Senior Medical Director of Population Health at Atrium Health, as well as the author of Reframing Healthcare, A Roadmap for Creating Disruptive Change. And he also is the producer and host of a podcast called Creating a New Healthcare. I was a fly on the wall during the recording of this interview, and I always feel like the best interviews are the ones that I leave feeling energized and excited to go out and do some good work. And this was certainly one of those interviews. Uh, is there anything you want to say about Zev before we start? 
you know, one of the things I think that you probably left that feeling energized is he does one thing that I don't know anybody else that does it maybe at all or as well. He's challenging our industry to do things differently. His book name is Reframing Healthcare. And he's challenging us at our core level of operations, which you could make an argument is absolutely necessary. But he does it in a way that he expresses a sincere appreciation for all of us in healthcare, clinical folks, financial folks. You know, we did this event with CFOs for First Illinois, and he walked away from that. He says in his own words, I'm in awe of these folks and what they do. And you don't see that very often. There's a lot of criticism of healthcare, and you could poke a lot of holes at what you know what happens in our industry. But he's got this really unique way of saying it, with also expressing a um, sincere respect for those of us that work in in healthcare. And I, I just find that refreshing. And it's not an act; it's what he really thinks, and that's what's fun about that. We all see the data that says that from an economic standpoint, that the industry is not sustainable. We hear clinical stories. We see all kinds of data that support the clinical stories. We have personal stories, and yet we don't seem to change. And what I want to start getting into is what do you think is causing the hesitation or the resistance to change in our industry? I mean, if you add that up, a logical person, which I'd like to think that I am, I can't make heads or tails of that. I think it's a great question. And as always, I, I, I love the way you framing up the questions and, and, and the problem. I think you hit upon that issue of sort of change management. It's a really interesting question. We sort of know this. And so the problem is for any given stakeholder, if you're a hospital, and again, I had the opportunity to, you know, talk to and meet with some of your colleagues, CFOs. I just, I love them. I, I can't say that some of my best friends are CFOs, but I can say that- We'll uh, get you there. You know, uh, <laughs> I, you know, it was the first time I've had a, the opportunity to do sort of detailed interviewing with with CFOs. And, and I just found them to be absolutely wonderful people, good-hearted, they get the problem. And to your point, why aren't we doing anything about it? And so I think for any individual stakeholder, it is very, very tough to change the system. I'm going to put a caveat there, a star that I want to come back to in a second, because I actually think that's an excuse I just made for us too. And I say that because I see exceptions to that rule all over the place. If you're in the C-suite, okay, you have the power. If you're a CFO, you have the power to change healthcare. You have the ability, you have the knowledge. There is no one that can do it more than a chief financial officer, because finances are everything. They're the backbone of everything we do. And your insights can actually, you can get your colleagues, you talk to your chief medical officer and your chief marketing officer and your chief executive officer. If you as a CFO say, I think we need to make a change in healthcare, no matter how small it is, let's find a place that we can do this. Let's find, I don't know how to do it, but there are people around that have some ideas and formulas, some examples. Let's start something, even if it's tiny. Or let's do it as an organization. So I actually think that's an excuse. I'm going to take that back. I actually do think every one of us can make a change. And now I'm not saying there's a there's not a cost to it, uh, but it's not it's not like you're disrupting everything. So there's examples in my organization that I'm in where you know I'm super super proud of some of the work that the senior leadership is 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 really in the board and and the CEOs. I, I've talked to people all the time. I can mention name after name, example after example of that. Uh, Tony Slonim, who's a physician CEO. 
PhD in population health. He's just crazy smart, brilliant. He runs a hospital called Renown in Nevada. Look him up. He runs a very successful, viable business. And at the same time, he is completely reframing and changing healthcare. So there's that example. There's other examples of employers who are changing healthcare, making health better and at a much, much lower cost. So I, I think it's doable. Our hospital system is doing a lot of work around social impact. Again, brilliant, brilliant work. So, so I take that back. Every one of us can make a change. At a macro level, I do think it's going to take, you know, we can't rely on the insurance industry or the hospital industry or, you know, pharma, you know, we can't rely on individual stakeholders. We're going to have to come together and make some changes. I do believe a core thing is sort of an anchor change is around payment. We have to, all of us, not just give lip service because I'm just going to call it straight. Most of the talk I hear is lip service. Yeah, we got to move to value-based care, but it's those guys. Those guys don't want to move. You know what? That's not true. No one wants to move to value-based care. They all want to keep uh, you know, the current system of fee-for-service in place. It is the most destructive thing we can do. It is toxic uh, on every level to individuals, on their health care level, on their safety level, on their economic and, and financial level. We have to make that shift. We have to make it together, and we have to make it much more quickly than we're doing. Now, having said that, I'm incredibly excited and hopeful because it's happening, right? The federal government is increasing. We have got uh, Medicare Advantage programs. We've got other programs like uh, direct contracting that allow us to sw- switch decapitated care for seniors. On the commercial side, we're seeing it. On the Medicaid, we're seeing increasingly states adopting Medicaid managed care, including the state I'm in, North Carolina. That's the movement, and it's happening, and we need to get behind it. And so that's a, on, a, on a macro level, that's what we need to do. Not make it a five to 10-year plan. Make it a one to two-year plan. How do we get there? Because in the meantime, we're killing people. We're killing our doctors and nurses because of it. And we're not putting the appropriate, and it's better care, it's a better place to work, and it's just better for, for the economy. So anyway, I do think there are some things we can do. People are really, really interested in it. And I, I can share lots of examples, lots of formulas, lots of things specifically we can do, one of which is primary care. Primary care has to be value-based. It, it has to be, and there are models of care that already know how to do this, the direct primary care. Having a fee-for-service primary care system in our country, uh, it's decimated primary care. And I'll be honest with you, one of the reasons I don't practice anymore, um, and I knew this as I let go of my practice, was I did not like practicing in a fee-for-service world. Uh, Seeing patients every 10 minutes as a primary care physician is just wrong. And now, I'm not talking about urgent care and things like that. Those are different things. But general primary care, care of seniors, care of complex chronic, you cannot do that. You need to have a direct primary care, a capitated primary care system. Not all of healthcare has to be capitated. When you talk about specialists, there you can talk about bundles as another way to, uh, in some sense, capitate specialty care and procedures. You could talk about, uh, again, these so-called centers of excellence uh, that Walmart uh, and other large corporations are using, where they're basically sending their employees to centers with certain specialists. Now, the thing about this is to understand and I, and I got this directly from uh, a VP at Walmart, it's not that the Mayo Clinic or Cleveland Clinic or Virginia Mason or Geisinger, it's not that their surgeons and their specialists are any better than anyone else's. That's not what makes a center of excellence. What makes a center of excellence is that they don't do inappropriate procedures. They screen the patients and their bias is not to operate, not to give people chemo, not to do things that people don't need. And so, you know, one example of that 
is they discovered, Walmart discovered something like 89% of all back surgeries were inappropriate. Something like 40, 30 to 50% of all cardiac stents were inappropriate. Okay. These are huge numbers. They have a million employees, something like that. Huge numbers. And the problem is not just that the cost, there's also morbidity and mortality associated with it. Because when you go through procedures, especially when they're unnecessary, things can happen, bad outcomes can happen, and people get harmed and people don't return to work. And so they, I mean, they knew this. This is not, by the way, this is not like news. This is no new flat news flash here. This stuff is 10 years old. We should all know this. There's money to be made. If you just want to look at this from a purely financial perspective, and you mentioned chronic conditions and chronic condition management and the lack thereof, there's a tremendous amount of money to be made just by managing chronic conditions better if you're not on a fee-for-service environment. If you were to, to share or take the risk and manage those patients better, you get a better outcome. And you know you could save 20, 30, 40% uh, per member per month just on managing those chronic conditions better. So there's money to be made. Absolutely. When you, you mentioned about payment. I'm glad you mentioned it. I, I think back to uh, one of your episodes recently was with Dr. Vivian Lee, and you asked her, where does payment reform sit on a scale of one to 10 in importance? <laughs> and uh, I, she said, well, it was in chapter 12, so it ranks a 12 out of, on a scale of one to 10. It was one of those times I was walking my dog, I was listening to it, and I was glad nobody was around because I yelled out, yes! <laughs> yeah. that's, that, those are the kinds of things that, that really need to happen. I want to expand on one more point that you made, and I want to even let less people off the hook because it goes way beyond the CFO and other people in the C-suite. So many of our listeners are not executives. Many of our listeners that would be report up through you know, the mm-hmm. finance organization. And I got to tell you, having been a CFO, uh, you know, the vast majority of things that, quote, I did were ideas from people that worked with me. So anybody listening, you know, you can move your organization forward. You can talk to your CFO about it. And even if you get initial resistance, you know, if you do your homework and you show that there are all kinds of benefits for looking at payment environment as one example differently and that there's money to be made, you might have to invest in some analytic capabilities and those kinds of things. The point being, Anybody can move the change needle if they want to. So, Joe, there's a lot to digest here. And I think our listeners might have a similar reaction to what mine was after listening. Full of energy and enthusiasm and also a feeling of what can I do? Where can I get started? Whoever I am, whatever role I'm in, how can I get started? How can I contribute to making the system better? What are your thoughts on that? A core part of this comes back to payment models. That's where I would start. Now, you know, some of you might say, well, my gosh, I'm three people away from the CFO. How am I going to change that? Well, part of what goes into preparing for sharing risk is data analytics, or sometimes it's sharing data with an insurer. That's a pretty innocuous way to start is to, to work with it, you know, a hospital and an insurance company working together to try to agree on the same set of data. Because from a factual data set, you can start to draw conclusions and then lead into risk sharing and those kinds of things. And so, you know, where I would start would be to start to think about how do I, I'm assuming that we're talking about health systems here, how do I position us to not just position us to take risk, how do I dive in to take risk? And that risk being not just a fee-for-service with a little bit of a quality kicker on top, you know, some 5% bonus or something like that. 
true risk where you get rewarded for caring for a population completely and you get rewarded for caring for them and keeping them healthier and, and and reducing the total claim cost. And so that would be where I would start is on the payment side. The other side, if you know, we have a bunch of revenue cycle people listening, you know, you could take that marketing mindset, you could, you know, you think of how does our healthcare system look and feel for just the everyday consumer? Do they understand, you know, the revenue cycle components? I can say with complete confidence that while there, there are many good practices underway and there's good things that are going on, it's still a real chore to navigate through the revenue cycle. And so you could take these same principles that we're applying to the clinical care models to drive payment you know, methodology changes. You could apply those same principles to the revenue cycle. And that's a place where, again, so many of our members could start is saying, how do we take an honest look at our revenue cycle processes? And do these make sense to common people? What's the user experience of our revenue cycle process? You know, those are places you can start and they all fit into the same model is making our industry function in a more consumer-centric way. So, Joe, before we close out the episode, let's talk about one of the exciting things coming up for HFMA, and that is the return of the live annual conference. Uh, it's going to be a different time of year. It's going to be a place we've never been, but you want to tell our listeners what to expect? I would love to because I'm so excited. First of all, note that this is our our being HFMA, this is our 75th anniversary year. And, you know, what a shame it would be if we couldn't celebrate that together. And so, um, but the fact is that we have not had a face-to-face meeting in well over a year. And so we are going to have a a live face-to-face annual conference in Minneapolis on November 7th to the 10th. And if folks haven't been to Minneapolis, it's a wonderful city. We're right downtown at the convention center. Um, yes, sometimes, uh, and, you know, maybe folks that live in warm weather climates that go, Minneapolis, you know, first of all, Minneapolis has all kinds of tunnels and you, you can navigate your way around, but it's just a great city. And um, the fall in the Midwest is beautiful. But I'm seeing this as a as a great reunion. This is going to be people coming together with passion for HFMA, friends, you know, lifelong friends, able to to reconnect in you know in in person, uh, in an environment where we're going to deliver absolutely top notch um, education like we always do. So we're really excited about it. Um, again, it's November seventh to the tenth. So that's what we have to look forward to. We're busy right now planning. I just got off a phone call a few hours ago where we're talking about uh, how to best celebrate the 75th year anniversary of HFMA and um, a lot of good memories there that we'll be able to celebrate. Voices in Healthcare Finance is produced by the Healthcare Financial Management Association and written and hosted by me, Erica Grotto. Sound editing is by Linda Chandler. Brad Dennison is our Director of Content Strategy. Our President and CEO is Joe Pfeiffer. If you want to chat with us, hit us up on social media. We're on Facebook and LinkedIn as Healthcare Financial Management Association and on Twitter at HFMAORG. All right, Grotto, get out of here.